who you are for the fact that you are sovereign, that you do work all things after the counsel of your will, that there's nothing in back of you, that we have no fear of a fate or a blind, but that there's a personal God behind every molecule, <clears throat> behind every event, behind every area of the universe. And we're so thankful that you have chosen to speak to us in grace through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. The set of notes that we handed out tonight is the, is the last set of the last chapter, um, though that there will be a conclusion to follow with, with just a page or two of that chapter left. We'll hand that out next week. And that will finish uh, the series as far as uh, taking the various events. What I will then do is spend four successive Thursday nights going through each of four appendices. Uh, one appendix will deal with the structure of the interpretation of Genesis 1 to 10, what all the big issues are in interpreting that. Not all the fine points, but just the, the overall interpretive problem of Genesis. And then the second one will deal with the biological issues. Third one, with kind of the physics, astrophysics, and chronometry issues, and the fourth one with geological issues. And obviously, in a short appendix, we're not going to deal with all the specifics. And that's not my intent. My intent is to go through the basic overall case for the scripture, the logic of the argument. And that's why tonight I wanted to start with that third question on page 90. Because we spent a long time now, we spent ever since, I guess, what we start in October uh, with this series, starting with creation, and worked our way this, up to Noah and the flood and the, and the uh, covenant. And what we've tried to do, as we said in the beginning, was not give a classical Bible study approach, but rather to give the major details of the Scripture, the major events of the Scripture, and show how these are in total collision with the culture of our time. And that the world is dark, the Bible says, and that's one of the things we want to explore because we can't be naive as Christians. Uh, we live in hostile territory and we want to understand what the conflicts are here. And there's a tremendous number of Christians that really don't understand that we're in a war. I mean, they're like soldiers in the front lines and they're standing up and getting, wondering why the bullets are flying around. Um, this is a war that we're in. And we, we, it's silly, frankly, not to recognize that that's what's happening. So that's part of the thing. And so in the third question, it says, this series of studies has the objective of furthering worship and obedience in the age of global deception. What have you learned about the deception of the pagan mind? What specific examples from modern thought can you now give to Paul's words in Romans 1. Remember Paul in Romans 1 said that it's not true. Remember we said this a lot in the beginning and we haven't you know, iterated this in the last two or three months. Paul's point in Romans 1 is that men are not ignorant of God. What Paul's point is, and it's very offensive. I mean, this is offensive even to Christians, leave alone non-Christians. What Paul is saying is that if we, if any person out there, any 
non-Christian or any, any person, man, woman, um, says that it's not clear to them that God exists. What the Bible's answer to that problem is, is not to try to prove that God exists to that kind of a person. Any more than if you were blind and I told you um, the lights are on and you didn't believe me, I, I have a problem trying to communicate to you what it means when I say the lights are on or the lights are off and you're blind. The Bible insists that when people say they're not sure whether God exists, the problem is that they suppressed knowledge that they once had. And that's true individually, it's also true culturally. And that's why the classic proofs for the existence of God some, uh, are oftentimes not too helpful for the reason that what happens is is that we some come together and we say that the non-Christian, the Christian mentality is the same, that logic is the same for both the Christian and the non-Christian, that the vocabulary is always the same for the Christian and the non-Christian. And because we have this common ground, we will sit there as gentlemen and reason from a common base. And, well, there is a common base, but it's not the base that the non-Christian would agree is common. The common base is that we are all made in God's image. We've all been created by him. We all have a conscience and we all know very well that there, he is there and there are absolutes. What happens is that we define this abstract thing called logic or this abstract thing called facts. And we say that those things are common to everyone and we will, on those bases, prove the gospel. But the Bible turns this around and says the very concept of proof itself is biblically derived. In other words, if God is there, then that controls my view of logic, it controls my view of what facts are and what facts are not. It controls everything. It controls the very standard of proof. So, see, the problem is that you can't get you can't get back far enough. And that's what is often the problem with common ground. So what we want to just say here in, in the third question is we want to just take a few minutes and review how deception exists in the modern world. At what points is modern man terribly deceived? And I, I don't think it requires tremendous intelligence or a spiritual perception, for that matter, to, to realize that if the Bible is seriously to be taken, to, if we look at this document in front of us and say that this is truth, you can't read too far without coming into collision with the, with the whole culture, everything we've learned, every, the whole educational system, everything, everywhere you go, we're into collision. So one of two things must be wrong. Either the world's right and the Bible's terribly wrong, or the Bible's right and the world's wrong. But you can't get these two things together. They don't mishmash. So as we have gone on, we have looked at these events of the Bible and we've tried to say, look, there are many, many implications to all these things. We spent two or three lessons just on creation. We spent time in the, in the fall. We spent time with the flood to show that these events and the truths of the narrative of Genesis 1 to 9 undercut biology, physics, geology, anthropology, 
psychology, literature, the theory of language, every single area is in conflict here. Not one. The Bible doesn't leave us one thing. And this is why I frankly believe this message doesn't get communicated too well by Christian academics. Because uh, it puts them in a position where they have to fight everybody. Now, obviously, none of us are competent to handle a battle on every front. And our job here is not to try to, to, to start an unwinnable war on every front, but it's simply to point out that as Christians, we can't be embarrassed and passive about what the Bible teaches. The pagan mind is deceived. It is deceived at the most basic point. Remember when we dealt with creation, we said something about man. We said something about man's design. And we said that man has, is theomorphic. It's not that God is anthropomorphic. It's rather that he made us in his image, so we're theomorphic. And as theomorphic beings, we are made in his image. Just another way of saying we are made in God's image. We have certain features that are in direct analogy with him. And we, we outlined some of those. We said that we have this thing called choice and responsibility. And it somehow is a finite version of what he has, what we call sovereignty. We said that we have conscience, the sense of moral responsibility that transcends society, that transcends my peer pressure group. And that answers to his holiness. We said we have an attribute of love. And that love can't really start functioning unless it functions in a secure environment because the opposite in the Bible to love is not hate. The opposite to the Bible is insecurity and fear. That's interesting. Our, our language has these antonyms to it, but we have to watch it. Because everywhere the Bible contrasts love, it's usually contrasted not against hatred, so much as it's concentrated against uh, hatred there, obviously. But behind that hatred is a, a fear. A f a perfect love casts out fear, those kind of things. So we have all these qualities in our spirits that mirror his qualities. The pagan mind is tremendously deceived at who he is. That he's not made in God's image, that God, if he's there, and they may use the word G-O-D, he is just one of other entities in this vast, mysterious universe. So while they talk about God, the God, the content of G-O-D, that word, the content, is not the same as the content of Scripture. And to get your head straight and keep from getting screwed up, you have to keep going through, it's like you have to keep bathing your own mind. Creation. Fall, flood, covenant, and thinking through. Now, wait a minute. Is the God I'm thinking of the creator? The, the God who said in the beginning, I created all things, heaven and earth. The pagan is deceived as to the nature of God. He's deceived as to the nature of man. Therefore, he's deceived on the nature of what knowledge is. He's deceived about the nature of logic. He's deceived about the nature of language. Now, having been deceived in all these areas, is it any wonder 
that the pagan mind comes up with theories, antithetical description, why we have a problem with aspects of evolution, we have problems with how we measure time, we have problems in the area of anthropology and so on. It's, it's no wonder. Man is a genius. We have been invested as creatures with intelligence. And we're going to, we're going to have dominion. The question is whether it's going to be an evil dominion based on deception or whether it's going to be a godly dominion based on truth. But dominion we will have because we can no more stop doing the things as people than we can stop breathing. So man will, is elegant. He is an elegant sinner, an ingenious sinner. Or he's an ingenious saint. But he's not a nothing. And that's what's terrifying about our, ourselves as creatures. So the pagan mind has been deceived from one end to the other. And what, we have tried, what we're trying to do now is we have looked at this event in particular, the Noahic Covenant. And we've said that that represents, just to review a moment, that the Noahic Covenant represents an important contract that is made between God and man. That there are parties to this contract that the terms of the contract are verifiable and the Bible bears testimony by empirical reports of history that that contract remains. The terms of the contract are open to verification. Just as any contract you or I would make is open to legal um, checking. And that's why people make contracts. So when we see the word contract start to appear in the text with Noah's time, we now have a, a very unique thing in, in the scriptures. And we emphasize that this idea of God, of the universe, making a contract with people is not found outside of the pages of the Bible. This is one absolutely unique thing about biblical faith, that we have a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. We said that that in turn has certain implications about nature. And one of the things we stressed last week was that what we call natural law really isn't natural law. It's actually the Word of God. So the Word of God controls nature. And the covenant is a revelation of some of the background powers to be that are now controlling the geophysical universe around us. The geophysical universe is like it's in a boundary condition, bounded by these, the Noahic Covenant. And we have the privilege of being able to open the Bible and turn to a passage in our language that tells us from the God of the universe what is the structure behind the geophysical realities that we observe and measure. And he says, I have an agenda. And no matter what you measure, no matter in what century you measure it, whenever you take your observation, I tell you in advance, it will satisfy my word. And my word is, and it's the covenant, that this is a planet that will never experience a global flood. It is a planet on which the human race will survive forever and ever. I make an everlasting covenant. The human race is not going to go away. It almost went away with the flood. So, we have all this implication as far as nature goes. Now, tonight, we want to move on one more step, and we want to look at man. We've looked at nature. Now we want to look at man in this new world of Noah. 
And just let's review something else. After the flood, you have a, a, almost a recreated universe. If we're to believe Peter's interpretation, 2 Peter 3, of Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And when you see this recreated universe, it's an analogy or a foretaste of the ultimate new heavens and the ultimate new earth. In other words, the past evil world has been absolutely catastrophically destroyed and transformed. There are saved people. The eight people come through the cataclysm from the old world to the new world. And they are the only people that survive. So going into the new heavens and the new universe, we have it populated at the very beginning by believers. So now what we want to look at is what happens in that new universe. So if you'll turn your Bibles uh, to, well, let's, before we turn our Bibles, let's turn to page 91 in the notes. We have said before that Man has social structures we call divine institutions. And we said the first social structure has been variously defined as responsibility and uh, dominion. I call, just call it dominion responsibility. And that's given in Genesis 1. DI number 2, the divine institution number 2 is marriage. The third divine institution we said is family. Now, by divine institutions, keep in mind, these are valid for all human beings. They are not just for believers. It's for believers and non-believers. This is a structure built into the human race. And we also pointed out in the past that when you see these things, they are not social conventions. Now, what happens is that the pagan mind, in our time particularly, but not, not uniquely, I mean, it's gone on for centuries, the pagan mind takes each of these things as either a byproduct of genes or a uh, mere convention. What do I mean by a mere convention? I mean an arbitrary thing that just happens. I mean, we just happen to think that way as a society, and that's the structures that we just have to think about, that's all. That's all it is. Nothing else. Not rooted to the very structure of the universe. That's what we mean by conventions. The Bible insists they are not conventions. This is the, mod this is the pagan view. Always has been. The Bible, the Bible says it's dominion, responsibility, marriage. These are built-in structures ordained by God. Then we said each has been corrupted by the fall. So we have dominion, responsibility, deeply twisted. We have marriage deeply threatened and competitive, the gender war. We have the family hurt in the flood. Not that these go away, but that each of them has been terribly injured by the fall. So that the family, instead of being a place where culture is passed on from father to son, mother to daughter, what it becomes is a sort of quasi-battleground for authority and humility and all the rest of the fights that go on. There has not been a non-dysfunctional family since Adam and Eve. So, when you don't get guilt complexes, every family is dysfunctional. You may have your area and I may have mine, but we're all dysfunctional. 
We have been dysfunctional since Eden. So, that's just where we start. So let the warts hang out. Hey, tell me something else is new. This is the way, the, this is the way we are after the fall. Now, what we want to do tonight is say, well, wait a minute. God reinstituted these things after the flood. What did he do about the structure of man? And here we pick up some interesting things that happened after the flood. And a lot of people read the Bible and they just pass right over this, zip right through it, and never give it a moment's thought. So tonight we want to give it a more than a moment's thought. Actually, we want to give it an hour's discussion. So, on page 91, I preface all of this issue of the divine institutions by a note of, uh, about how to interpret Noah. And to get at what I'm trying to say, I'm going to put up a little graph here. The graph of what happened to man's longevity after the flood. I want you to look at that graph again. We've, we've looked at it several evenings. But I want you to think about the implications of this graph in another way. Now, previously when I showed that graph, I was interested in showing just the bare fact that you go from a high uh, longevity here, about averaging best curve and best fit, about 930 years, to this drop, tremendous drop in man's longevity. And we said if you curve fit this thing, you come out with a, what we call in science an exponential decay curve, which is very interesting that that has, happens to be there, a testimony to the feature that it's a real feature, it's not just arbitrary numbers. And that's all we wanted to say before, because we were using this diagram before to simply show that this thing called a flood had enormous implications. It wasn't just somebody's bathtub that overflowed in the Mesopotamian River Valley. This was an enormously significant event. Now, what tonight we want to do is we want to look at this graph again and ask ourselves if we were Noah at this point in time and we were Noah's children at this point in time, what unique characteristic happened in human history between this period and, say, this period? Let's take the three or four generations from Noah to his sons to his grandsons, and so forth. Now, in this period of history, just this period of history, we're not going to worry about this history, and we're not going to worry about the history that was before the flood. Because in the, before the flood, we have a flat curve, and this curve eventually becomes flat. But what hasn't been thought about is what the implication is for these four generations. These four generations, from Noah they're the first groups out on earth after the flood. Now, what would have happened to those four generations that never happened before and never would happen again? It was an entirely unique period of human history because during that period of human history, grandparents outlived their grandchildren. That has never happened. Before that, never will happen again. It won't happen apparently in the Millennial Kingdom although you have other problems there too, but right here is a... If, if, this is all predicated, if, if we take the Bible seriously, if we believe it's really truthful, if we believe that that is historical truth, if we believe that, 
then we have to have the courage to start creatively drawing some conclusions about what was going on here. And that's what these two pages in the notes are all about. How do we interpret the Noahic era? So if you'll follow me in the notes for a moment, I want to take you through a little bit of, of history to just kind of start your, your mental juices going when you read Genesis. Um, I mentioned a man by the name of Dr. John Pilkey. I went to school with him and for the, he was, he's probably studied Genesis 9, 10, 11 more than any person I've ever met or even read about. This guy has devoted probably 30 years of research to those two chapters of the Bible. Um, just that's been his hobby. And I think he's come up with some interesting things. I don't agree, agree with everything he said, uh, but I'm, I'm not competent to pass judgment on some of the stuff that he's found. But if you'll notice the third paragraph up from the bottom that says, Pilkey has gone back to a Bible-based historical school of scholarship known as the Euhemerus Movement that flourished in Europe in the 17th to the 19th centuries. Euhemerus scholars sought to interpret ancient history through the eyes of Genesis 9 to 11. They believed that stories of pagan gods were actually garbled tales of the civilization-founding activities of Noah and his sons. Now, this is a group of scholars that's dropped out. The only scholar that you probably will ever hear about of the Euhemerus school, and that only if you are a classicist and you like old Christian books, you might have heard of the book called The Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop. Alexander Hislop is the only one that modern evangelicals read, even, of these men. But Hislop was late in the group. There were other men before him. And all these men were Bible-believing Christians. They lived in the era when ancient documents were coming to light. And what they decided they had to do was explain this. And they were, they were passionately interested in the classics and the Greeks, gods and goddesses and so on. They wanted to put this together. And they believed, see, they, they were Christians in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries who had all this new data about mythology. And they, as Christians, wanted to fight against that mythology. Well, their method of fighting it was to dissolve the power of the gods and goddesses by saying, oh, uh, they weren't really gods and goddesses. What they were were the sons and daughters of Noah. And they would go into elaborate details, tracing features. I mean, these guys had it down to who was who, who did what, that uh, who Nimrod was in Genesis 10 actually shows up under three or four different names. He appears in Egyptian history under a certain name. He appears in Syrian history under a certain name. And they went into extreme details. If any of you ever see the book, The Two Babylons, you'll see what Hislop does. I mean, he goes into all kinds of details. Footnotes and real fine print footnotes, all kinds of stuff. Well, these men died out, of course, and, and their views just slid off the table and nobody bothered to pick them up and thought, well, that's all obsolete history because after all, we know now that man lived 10,000 years or 100,000 or a million years. And so obviously, uh, such a mythological thing could never have happened in history. Well, Pilkey went back and said, wait a minute, these euhemerists were godly Christian scholars who were onto something and nobody's ever followed up on their work. So what would happen if you did that? Anyway, that's Pilkey's whole point. Now, on the second paragraph from the bottom on page 91, here's where it ties into this graph that I'm showing you. 
If you remember the graph in chapter 5 of the longevity decline of man after the flood, there's a striking anomaly in it. During the decline in longevity between Noah and Abraham, grandfathers outlived their grandsons, a never-to-be-repeated experience in human history. This strange era, the Euhemerus believed, was the key to understanding how ancient civilization exploded into view. It also furnishes the clue to deciphering the tribal myths found around the world. That in fact, what happened was that what we call civilization suddenly erupts in glory and grandeur. Suddenly you have Egyptians with their mighty architecture. Suddenly you have these high, very literate, elaborate pictor, uh, pictographs. You have all this mathematics being done to compute volumes and so forth. Where did this suddenly spring up? If you think about how you learned history, just think about how you learned history. Did you ever get a good explanation for that? Now, first, on one page of the history book, they show some guy that looks like he forgot his banana. And then on the next picture, here we have the pharaohs building a, a pyramid with all kinds of tremendous solid geometry relationships going on. And, and well, how, wait a minute, how do you go from bananas to pyramids? Where's, what's the transition here? And that's what the Euhemerists were arguing about. The only explanation you've got is that something like this happened. And this is very important to understand Noah because the Bible doesn't explain this for a reason which we'll get into. The Bible gives us the Noahic story and the spiritual side, but the Bible passes over and doesn't mention much about what other things these guys did. Well, the other things that Noah and his sons did were basically to start what we call civilization. It was his grandchildren that started the pyramids. Perhaps his sons. That's what they got the idea for the pyramid, probably from Mount Ararat. We don't know that because they didn't leave a document to prove it. But why was there this passion in the Egyptian delta, which, by the way, was being flooded, being flooded, mind you, in the time because the first pharaoh, Menes, got his power because he was able to stop the flooding in the Nile Delta. Now, where did they get all this? So there's been a, you know, we can't prove this, but the very form of the pyramid is a form of stability. It will not go away. It's not going to be knocked over. It's not going to change. It's there today and tomorrow and forever. It's a symbol of power and authority. Now, why do they build pyramids? Why? Was it a memory of the fact, in an apostate way, that I will never be disturbed again, as, for example, Nimrod did with his tower to heaven? Or what? We don't know, but we surely know that it was very early on, if we're to take the Bible chronology. You don't have a thousands of years here to get started. You only have one or two generations to get this stuff going. So how does it explode into view? It explodes into view because of the fabulous genius and the longevity of these people, the first few people that populated this world. They passed this tra tra tradition on tremendously in rapidity with great creative force. So in the bottom of page 91, if there were only a few centuries between Noah and Abraham, then ancient civilization in Egypt and elsewhere must have been established rapidly. Such rapid development of society could only have occurred if there were brilliant uh, leadership, architects, engineers, farmers, political leaders who spread out quickly into the earth to subdue it. Pilkey notes that such a brilliant core family behind the rapid origin of our civilization is inconceivable to modern man. 
We cannot accept the total godlike authority that would have been required for such a project because of democratic ideals. And I want you to read with me through this quote. It's got a lot of good stuff in here. Noah's family has not been clearly conceptualized because there is something truly frightening about such a family to scholars of the modern democratic era. The fear of falling victim to merciless despotism is the democratic soul of evolutionary thought, which refers the origin and maintenance, watch the sentence, which refers the origin and maintenance of civilization to gradual or powerless processes rather than to charismatic power. And you see, what Philke's arguing here is that the, the explanation for the explosive development of these high cultures is that you had geniuses that controlled it. Noah and his sons set out to really, literally design the world we live in. They were the people that created society. And they did it with godlike power. Their power was so awesome, living this long compared to the people who came after them, that they began to be worshipped as absolute gods and goddesses and despots. They had an awesome degree of power. And the Pharaonic dynasties of Egypt perpetuated that power. Whatever Pharaoh said, Pharaoh got. So the, the, the radiating power from Noah and his families was enormous, probably due to this little feature of history that occurred in that era. As Pilkey goes on to say, a fourth millennium Pharaohmenes is a harmless cipher. A third century Pharaoh, meaning you don't have that much time to get it started, is part of a sublime and terrifying spectacle. The latter chronology implies that Noah's family were empowered to build world civilization overnight. As Democrats, we reserve the right to paint emperors in our own image. We do this at the risk of fulfilling the prophecy of Jude, who warned that some of us would deny the monas despotes, the only, the only Lord, the only dictator, Jesus Christ. By the word, notice the word despot. Jesus is called a despot in the good sense. Jesus, when he comes back, is not going to run an election platform. He is going to rule as a dictator through a popular distaste for despotism in general. Prior to the democratic revolutions of the later 18th century, scholars found it easier to think clearly about Noah than they do today, despite our advantage in positive evidence. Then if you look at the next quote, by viewing Noah as a mere survivor of the flood, rather than as a builder of nations, we have not only negle neglected his 350-year post-alluvial lifetime, but we have ignored those spiritual ideas which made the Gentile world just that, a designed cosmos. In estimating the spiritual worth of Noah's cosmos, we are faced with the striking fact that its Gentile populace, if not the cosmos itself, will survive all subsequent judgments into the millennium and eternal state. On the other hand, of course, the prophecy of Daniel 2.44 reveals that this cosmos is the seat of political authority must be destroyed. Gentile political power must yield to the Messiah of Israel and in so doing will extinguish a peculiar regime dating back to Noah's post-diluvial lifetime. What, what he's saying is we've got to get a vision for what went on. The Bible doesn't fill us in with all the details, but secular history provides us with the facts. So, if you'll turn to page 93 and look at the two texts, then, we are looking at the reinstitution of these divine institutions. Because whatever God did, he re-energized these divine institutions. In spite of the fact they're now fallen, they were the building blocks of a many high, brilliant, well-educated, high cultures. And in Genesis 1.28... 
versus Genesis 9, I put them side by side so you can watch the difference. On the left side is the original institution. On the right side is the reinstitution after the flood. And I'm drawing attention to the last part of that quote on the left. God said, Behold, I have given every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, every tree which is fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. But on the other side it says, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give, to, I give all to you as I have given the green plant. Only you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now what strange thing has God done here? All of a sudden, when he reconstitutes the first divine institution in language very much reminiscent of Genesis 1, he begins to give an instruction about diet that now makes us carnivorous. Why is this sudden transformation? Now we're meat-eating. That was not mentioned in Genesis 1. A very significant point. You know why I know it's significant? Because what happens under the Mosaic Law to the dietary controls? Very elaborate. So remember, who were the original readers of Genesis? Israelites. Who were living under a kosher diet regime. The origin of the clean and unclean meat was passionate. It might not be to us, but it was to them. And they were the first readers of this text. So, therefore, when we read this little thing about diet and we just pass over and, you know, we're Gentiles, we don't pay attention to that stuff. We just eat. They didn't. This was an important point to them. So now we have to say and reflect on why meat-eating starts in at this point. So this is why on page 93, I mention down at the bottom... God wants us to respect the life that is given up and acknowledge that it is his, not ours. Genesis 9.4 limits our claims on animals when we kill them for food. The only exception given in Scripture is given by Jesus when he says in John 6, go ahead and drink my blood. Now what's stunning about that announcement in John chapter 6 is it flies in the face of the Noahic Covenant. You see, a Jew would have been stunned by what Jesus said there. Never, ever before has anyone ever authorized the eating of meat with blood. And Jesus, as though he deliberately wanted to make a point, a point that would stun his Jewish hearers, he says, go ahead, eat my flesh and drink my blood. In total collision with this regime that had been set in motion. So, these, uh, this is not just peripheral detail in the text. There's something going on here in the text. So, if you'll turn to Genesis 9, we want to look at some context.
at this text. And you ask yourself, what is the objective? In other words, in verse 4, and we might as well go ahead in verse 5, although we won't get into verse 5 and 6 tonight. What is the concern God seems to have in verse 4 and verse 5 and verse 6? Now look at those passages. Only you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. In other words, isn't there a, a reticence to say, you can eat meat, but the life that has been given up to provide you with food is precious. And I'm putting little boundaries around it just so you are reminded of what is going on here. There's something abnormal. There's something wrong. We're living in a fallen environment now. The Noahic world, unlike Adam's world, Adam began not knowing the difference between good and evil. Noah's world starts out with a knowledge of both good and evil. And involved in this is death and all the evil processes and decay and fallenness. And now we have that man must literally... What's the act of eating? I mean, let's just think about this. What more primitive, basic thing do we do every single day when we, than when we eat? And what are we doing when we eat? Well, ask yourself, what happens if you don't eat? Eating is basic sustenance. Now, if what has, what has happened here is God has said that for us to be sustained in our lives, we tread on the lives of somebody else. To keep us alive, someone else has to die. That's the life in the new world. It is a life of existence based on sacrifice, sacrificial death. In other words, eating is actually an adumbration or a foreview of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Going into a carnivorous regime when it's authorized by God with these little provisos that I don't want you to eat the blood. You've, you've killed an animal. I recognize you have to eat and you have to do that. But having done that, there are certain cautions. The animal absolutely is not yours. It's mine. And you have taken from mine to sustain yourself, and I've let you do this. But there's a caution here. Now, if you'll notice how this reads very nicely in verse 5 and 6, and surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it, from every man, from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Now, we'll get into capital punishment in the handout notes this time, but what's the, what's the goal of verse 6 there? I mean, think, what's the concern? What's on God's heart? Is he authorizing this horrible thing called capital punishment just because he thrills at it? Or does he have something on his mind? And it looks like what you see on his mind is in verse 6b, the last part of that verse 6. For, explanation of why I am doing this. For, here's my explanation, in the image of God I have made man. Something very valuable and precious is here that's been destroyed. So what you get out of verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6 is the sanctity of life. And that that life, whether it's in the life of the animal or whether it's in the life of man, 
is something to be cherished, to be honored, and to be respected. Even though now man eats meat and he destroys animals in order that he may survive, the act of doing it itself becomes something of honor. It is to be done in an honorable way. What you can't help but conclude in all this is that when God reconstituted this first domain, this first dominion responsibility, the first divine institution, he, for, he, he forced us to have to acknowledge that our dependency is not now just as a creature eating grapes, eating herbs, eating plants that don't die because they don't have nephesh. That's something, but maybe some of you should... Maybe I should pause here at a moment by word of explanation. The word life in Hebrew is nephesh. Plants, you can say, well, gee, there was death. Plants died when they were eaten. Plants are never said to have nephesh. Never said to have nephesh. Only animals, and apparently only certain animals, have nephesh. Animals that have nephesh are animals in whom there is the breath of lives. That's what somebody breathes. That's called life. Now, we can start, you know, a Christian biologist can think, well, now, what's the difference here between a plant cell and an animal cell and all the, the biological and botanist versus zoological complications here? But be aware that the scriptures do make that distinction, okay, to be fair. So, when Adam and Eve ate grapes, apples, or whatever else they ate, vegetables, whatever they ate, they were not killing life. Then comes along Noah, and Noah starts to destroy life, to eat. There's a tremendous difference here. And it's fundamental because eating is the one basic thing we all have to do to sustain our lives. So the very way we sustain lives in the new world is by substitutionary death. Now what is this talking about? You see, our civilization has been very cleverly designed. We don't think of this. We think of, God, animals are carnivorous. Man was carnivorous. He just evolved from the ape. No problem. But that's an utterly different concept than this. Here we have a discontinuity in history. Man changes the way he eats in such a way that he now has to be sustained by sacrificial death in a physical way. And what's interesting is that this is occurring to a divine institution for both believer and unbeliever, which means that every member of the human race is sustained by sacrificial death. Now, that's an interesting point. It's a setup, because later when Jesus in John chapter 6 begins to try to explain what he has done on the cross, he uses eating, and in particular, meat-eating, as the illustration of salvation. Now, who set that all up? For centuries, man was eating meat to ingrain within us that we are dependent upon death. We are dependent upon death. In order that we live, somebody else may die. In order that I live, somebody else dies. In order that I live, somebody else dies. And then along comes Jesus and says the same thing. See, the pattern and structure of the universe is in league and coherence and a logical connection with a cross. So as we work our way forward in history, it's pointing to God's solution. So here's one of the major things we want to make, and to see that this is a serious point, turn to 1 Timothy 4. 
The New Testament makes a little commentary about this business of food. It's always been an agenda of paganism to try to erase guilt of sin some way, shape, or form. Therefore, whenever the creation seems to be too clear in its message about God's creatorhood and our creaturehood, we've got to drown it out and bury it. That's why I have every title in this, this series of notes. The buried truth of something. The buried truth of this. The buried truth of that. What am I getting at? Because sin buries the truth. That's what we're getting at. Not only is the truth literally buried in the ground underneath our feet when we walk on, on, on sedimentary rock and we dig down and we find animal death in the rock, I mean, we're walking on judgment. When we drive my, our cars and we use a gasoline product that comes from an oil field that comes from animals that have died, we can't even drive our cars without killing something. The very engines we use depend for their existence on input from the death of life animals. So, you would say then, paganism has to do something with this. And indeed it does. The pagan mind has always played and toyed with getting back to nature. It has always tried to undo, for example, government. We'll get into that next time. It has always tried to undo marriage and go to a commune. It has always tried to undo the city and go to the country. It has always tried to undo uh, the institution of marriage. And it has always tried to undo the eating of meat. Interesting. Pagan religions are almost inevitably in the East, far, in the Far East, vegetarian. And here in 1 Timothy, Timothy 4, 3, notice the characteristic. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth, and so forth and so forth. Now, obviously in the context, it's talking about men whose hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as the branding iron, and in verse 1, talking about these are basically deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, the energizing forces behind the pagan mentality, manifest themselves historically and socially in this, this position. Why is there meat? Is there some physical reason for it? I cite in the notes one Christian doctor who thinks there may be a physical reason why when we transitioned from this old regime to this, obviously something radical is happening physiologically and anatomically to our bodies. Obviously. Apparently, meat provides something that is necessary for our bodies under this regime. Maybe someday... We'll learn. All we learn today is all the dangers about cholesterol and red meat and all the rest of it. But that's not the final word. That's not the final word. Someday, somebody's going to figure out why meeting, eating of meat is essential on this planet for us in our time. And we don't know why. This Christian doctor I quote thinks it may have something to do with the concentration of protein with spiritual conflict. That's just her speculation. But I throw it in there just to stimulate some thinking about what possibilities do you think cause this. All right, so we've gone on then tonight and we've looked at the reconstitution of the first divine institution. Now let's come to the second one.
marriage. Now, what to do, uh, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 2 for that. And note something that we skipped one night because we ran out of time. But in Genesis 2.10, you remember one night we started in with a little imaginative geography lesson. You say, what's that got to do with marriage? We'll get there. We said that if you look at the, at the text, you have a river flowing out of Eden, out of Eden, as though Eden is some area out of which a, flo- a river flows, and east part of Eden there was a garden. The garden wasn't all Eden. The garden was a garden in Eden. And the river flowed out of that and then did a funny thing that rivers don't do now, and that is it went in four directions. So this four river scheme seemed to do, have to do something with the structure of this antediluvian world. A strange world it was. And like I told you, when we went through this, modern scholars look upon it, oh, this is all mythical. This is a land of myth. And the reason they say that is because you look in the names in verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, verse 14. You can say what you want to. Two of those four rivers are known. The other one flows around the whole land of Cush. And the only way that could be on our present earth, Cush was Ethiopia. I mean, the geography just doesn't fit. So, an obvious answer to this is that it doesn't fit because the world was different then. These four rivers were remembered in history and the two rivers that came out of Ararat, Tigris and Euphrates, the first rivers probably that post-Diluvian then saw, he named them and he named them for the rivers he was familiar with. Noah's family knew these four rivers. So they obviously started naming things from the pre-flood world, just like settlers come to the United States, York, Pennsylvania, named for York, England. So there's this renaming that goes on. Well, the human race, of course, grew and grew by the time of Noah's day. So you have many, many uh, families. You start out with Adam. Eve is derivative of Adam genetically, by the way. Important point. God did not make a pair. He made Adam and then he made Eve out of her. So genetically, she's derivative of him. And then from this, you have the gene pool. The mystery happens here is that where, what led to this gene pool? Where did it all go? We know that eight people were saved down in Noah's day. So we have Noah, Noah's wife, Ham, his wife, Japheth, his wife, and Shem and his wife. So here is where the gene pool was saved. Now, the interesting thing is, if this is Noah, this is Ham, Japheth, and Shem, Ham, Shem, and Japheth obviously are heavily influenced because they are the physical sons of Noah and Noah's wife. So they are heavy, heavy with their genes. Now, the only other source of diverse genes were the three women who married those three guys. There's where another source of genetic material came from. So, marriage through these three women could well have supplied, because uh, the be fruitful multiplies to do the earth, they, those three women, 
are the only other sources for the genetic material for everybody that exists today. Now, whether what we call racial distinctives occurred because of some physical transform after the flood, or whether, in fact, they were always there from the start, whether basically what we call racial differences among men just simply are genetic outworkings of what was originally in Adam, whatever that, if we believe that, though, then these women become very critical. What Dr. Pilkey's research shows is that the pagans universally remember that there were four matriarchs that originated the human race. And interestingly, their names translate to the red matriarch, the yellow matriarch, the white matriarch, and the black matriarch. Now, isn't that interesting that those also just happen to be the four racial colors? So the question then becomes whether here, through Noah and these marriages, that not only did God do an amazing thing, not only did God save only people in one family, but that one family just happened to carry key genetic stock for the entire diversity of the human race that we see. I won't go into the details here because later on in the fall, when we get into the later parts of, of um, Genesis 10, 11, 12, that's when I'll deal with how civilization started. And we find that these racial traits show up in history again and again and again, each with its strengths, each with its weaknesses. And it's a really a sound view of race. It's amazing to me, in a day when we're talking about racial structures and harmony, nobody's ever noticed that the Bible has a very, very interesting concept of race, a very interesting concept, how every race needs the other one. And whenever you have, even to the point when Jesus was carrying the cross, there were various races that were involved that, right in the act of carrying the cross. So, all wherever God has done, he has always utilized all of the races together. Marriage, as it was constituted after the flood, seemed then to include the diversity that had started since Adam and Eve. And out of this, we obtain the racial distinctives. What we're going to do next time is we're going to go into uh, what happened with a family. Because what happens here when we come to the third divine institution, this is where a major change occurs. God reconstitutes the family, but now the family becomes the source of the nations. We have a new thing here. And then God begins to add something else that he never added before, a new responsibility that is tied in with nations that is the origin of civil authority, the sword. So just kind of to, to prepare for that, I want to conclude by turning to Genesis chapter 3, the last verse in Genesis chapter 3. And as you uh, look at the notes for next time, please read Genesis 9 and 10 again if you haven't. I want you to notice that in the last verse of Scripture that describes what happened at the fall says that right there at the gate of Eden stood, and this is the first time in the Bible the word sword is occurring. He drove the man out. At the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubs and the flaming sword which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. The sword is to kill. Always in Scripture. The sword is to kill. 
It's a tool of killing. I work at Aberdeen Proving Ground. We make swords. Our job is to make the best weapons to kill the most number of people in the most efficient way we can. I work with men who have put 20 to 30 years of their life in a weapon system that is designed to kill people. And they get all excited when one of them works. And it's a strange world. I mean, some people would really sit down and have to lunch with one of these guys, and he's all excited because his gun worked. It, I, there was a man there in, in, um, over there who was telling me about the story that occurred during the Vietnam War. In the early days of the Vietnam War, our guys would be at these fire bases, artillery support bases of the troops out in the field. And the, the troops were out here, and the VC would could end run the troops and come in and take out these guys at the fire bases. Well, the guys at the, at the artillery posts had big guns, but not very many little guns. So what they would do when they were getting overrun by hundreds of these V-Cons, they'd lower the gun down to zero elevation and fire into them. Well, you can fire a tank round into 200 people, but the problem is it just goes through. It, it does a great job vaporizing four people, but there's 80 more coming at you. It's not quite an efficient tool. So this guy devised a round that would fit in the cannon that would throw out about 10,000 spinning red-hot razor blades, and it would shred human flesh. And so he gave three of these rounds, one to one firebase, one to the next one, and one to the third one, and they were just waiting for one of these VC attacks where they would try to mass attack one of our artillery bases, and they finally, one day it happened, and the guys lowered the thing down to zero degrees, fired it, and it's not big explosion, just kind of like a puff of smoke. And the GI says, oh, that didn't work. And so they go back to reload the gun with the other ammunition. And they say, wait a minute, where did they all go? And they were smeared all over the trees, stuck with jagged pieces of metal and steel and so on. They came back to this guy and the guy was, hey, oh, good, great, it worked. So these are the guys that build swords. That's their life profession, to build swords and kill efficiently. And that's the kind of people I work with. Okay, nice people. <laughs> but the point is that sword in Scripture always means killing. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, when you have the flaming sword, that is a killing tool. And it is the first use of execution. Anybody who tried to get into Eden was summarily executed if they tried it. And who was doing the executing? Man? No. Angels, apparently. Angels appeared to have the power of the sword at this point in history. Now, what you will read in Genesis 9 with the Noahic Covenant is the power of the sword moves from the angelic sphere to man. This is a momentous thing that happens in history. And all I say is what I prefaced, what I started with tonight, is that these, this is a mysterious time of history, a very mysterious thing. Great changes occurred with Noah and his family. And we do well to pay attention because it explains things that bother us today, things that we don't understand about history. It gives us an outline. It gives us a basis of working. And it's all found because the author of history wrote this text for us. So next time, if you'll look carefully at the notes, we'll discuss this issue of killing and the issue of the nations and the languages and the races. Father, we thank you for our time tonight.
And we do thank you that you have, through just a simple act of causing humans to have to kill animals to eat and to survive, that we are reminded that the only way we can live spiritually is off of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.